Welcome to Coastline Church, seeking renewed faith in Humboldt County by being settled and secure in God's love. To learn more, visit coastlinefoursquare.com. So the last name I have now is Darnell. My background is Scanlon. My background ancestry includes Sweeney's, Scanlon's, Sullivan's. Any of you notice a theme in that about Irish heritage? <laughs> and it's Southern Irish heritage. So I'm going to, that's going to come to play and something I'm going to share. <clears throat> Fully aware this is not going to be balanced. I, I don't often speak from balance. I speak by emphasis of what I want to emphasize. Um, maybe next time I speak, I'll talk about something in Psalms. I originally prepared something out of Psalms for this week. But Friday, I really felt like God wanted to switch to John 4. And John 4 is a very familiar story. But the real impact of what's going on is often missed if you don't understand culturally and socially what's going on at that time. And that's, that's what I'm going to bring about now. So I'm going to talk first about the Ireland famines, um, specifically the famines in the 19th century. There actually were multiple famines in Ireland. And I'm going to talk about the Orange Day Parade riots. So what does that got to do with John 4? Well, it, it'll get there. <clears throat> so in the 1870s, there were Orange Day Parades, 1870 and 1871. Um, it would be by what's known as the Orange Irish or the Loyalist Irish. It was actually really British Irish. Um, some of you know today, Ireland, the, the northern, the northeast part of Ireland, the six counties, they are actually a British colony, or they're actually a British, well, actually now they're a British state, but, but the whole history involves 800 years from, uh, at least from the Irish point of view, 800 years of oppression. And what happened in the 1800s, the 1840s, the Great Famine, is there was a potato blight. And the reason that was an issue is because in Ireland, farm workers were only allowed to eat potatoes. Actually, if you're in Ireland and you say the Irish love potatoes, they will be greatly offended. They would say the Irish don't love potatoes. That's all we were allowed to eat. Because what they had was the farm workers are working on the fields and they're growing grains and they're seeing their grains used to feed cattle. And all the grains and all the meat, they're going to Britain. They're either going to the loyalists who control everything, or they're going actually literally being shipped to Britain. So what they were left with were the potatoes. And then the potato blight hit. And you don't even know the geography and, and the whole like, the climate change happened where there was excess moisture. Anyway, lack of potatoes. And the answer from the Brits for this potato famine was not, oh, well, rather than ship all your grains to Britain, Rather than ship all the meat or even use that grain to feed meat to ship to Britain, we'll let the people have it. No, they thought they were generous to say, what we'll let you do is we'll allow you to actually import some grain from the U.S. So you can import some corn. So they got to have some cornmeal, which actually doesn't have the same nutritional value of potatoes. And basically the bottom line is a million people starved to death. In the western and the southern extreme counties, as many in some counties, as much as half the population died of starvation or malnutrition diseases. So this is, this is pretty heavy because as a person in Ireland, you're seeing the grain and pasture on their land 
which could be used to feed your family. No, it's being fed to animals so it can go to the British and the loyalists. And it's because of that great famine that so many people left Ireland. So Ireland's population went from 1841, they figured there was like maybe eight to eight and a half million people in Ireland. 50 years later, there's only like 4.8 million. That's how badly it changed the country. Well, the rest of the population of Europe's exploding. Ireland's gets cut down by like three, three-eighths. <clears throat> the people in New York City that are of Irish descent, most of them are what you, they're, they're what you call the Green Irish, the Irish from the South. The only reason they're in New York is they had to flee family and friends because of what's happening back in the homeland. And the money they're raising, they're working jobs. This is also during what they call Nina, which means no Irish need apply. Um, so it was hardy at work. They were already feeling oppressed from where they were. So they're only in there away from their family and friends, away from their homeland, because they can't survive. And then in the midst of all that, they had parades celebrating Orange Day. It refers to William of Orange, 17th century. William of Orange, the Protestant king, has victory over James II, the Catholic king. And to the secular world, it was like, see, look, at Christians can't get along. It's these Catholic Protestants fighting each other over religion. I'm hoping you're getting by this. It's not really about religion. Okay, the reason why a lot of Irish have stayed Catholic was because the Brits were Protestant. I mean, it was really, it's more cultural. And when they had their Orange Day parades, the Orange Irish that lived in New York City would purposely go through the, uh, the Irish Catholic part of town because they're thumbing it in their noses about how William of Orange was our big hero. And I think we all recognize, depending on which side you are, what one group celebrates as a hero and the other group sees it as a villain. So when they're celebrating Orange Day Parade and people are saying, oh, they're just celebrating the Protestants over the Catholics, the secular newspapers at the time thought, see how dumb the Irish are, they're, they're losing their minds, they're fighting over religious ideas. But it wasn't religious. It's because when this celebration happens, you're saying, you're celebrating the very thing that led me to fleeing my country. I saw relatives starve to death as the grains we were growing were shipped to Britain, and you're celebrating that. Do you understand the emotional feeling they would have, which is what led to, I'm not saying riots were right. And even the stuff that happened later in Northern Ireland, you know, even in this century, well, not this century, but well, even, yeah, there's still protests. But even in the 20th century, the riots in Northern Ireland were not religious wars. It, it frustrated me that I'd seen newspapers talk about, you know, the war of religions, you know, see how religion causes war. It wasn't over that. It's over something cultural and something that happened politically and actually just two people's lives. Make sense? Okay, because I want you to understand that kind of feeling as we go into John. Now, first of all, some context. <clears throat> the way, um, I don't know if you're familiar, there's, there's a group of Jews to this day, there still is in Israel Samaritan Jews. So they're, they're a sect of Judaism that believes Mount Gerizim was supposed to be the place of worship, not Mount Zion. Uh, when, when the Jews say worship in Jerusalem or Mount Zion, it's the same place. Jerusalem is built on Mount Zion. Mount Zion. And the way they interpret, the way you interpret Deuteronomy, there's a difference between them. So in Samaritan Torah, the Samaritans have a Torah like the, the other Jews have Torah, just slightly different. Um, Samaritan Jews tend to not believe in the other prophets that 
the majority of Jews believe in. Okay? Um, I don't want to get too caught up on this, but this actually goes way back 500 years before Christ. Um, well, even before that. Um, remember, the northern tribes were taken away in 722 uh, B.C., and it wasn't until the 6th century B.C., it wasn't until 580 that you see the, Jude the, the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and Levi taken away. And just to be a little clear, because I said once that only, only Judah and Benjamin and Levi kept their, uh, their tribal identity, it doesn't mean there aren't any people who are Jews from the other tribes. I'm just saying as a whole. Because even during that time, um, when the Assyrians invaded northern Israel, some of the Jews did flee to Judah. And so there are people that have other tribal identities around today. And also in the diaspora, there are some. Okay, I went longer than I meant. <clears throat> I guess I want you to get is the bottom line of this is there were lots of reasons why the Jews and the Samaritans saw each other as different. But especially it was the Jews saw the Samaritans as inferior. They claimed they were all mixed breed, that they weren't pure Jew enough because when the Assyrians moved in, some Jews were left, but Assyria also moved in other tribes, other people. And then their claim was, you're all mixed up in there. Um, reality, though, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, Jews in both places were mixing it up yeah, as far as marriage and such. <clears throat> okay, so they have this controversy over where you worship. That, that's a big deal to, to both parties. And, and I do want to make clear, when you read Deuteronomy, there, there, there is some valid, like you, you can kind of see where Samaritan Jews would say, yeah, it looks like it's more about Mount Gerizim than it is Mount Zion. Because it even goes to like even, even other parts, like when they come into the land and God speaks of Mount Gerizim as the Mount of Blessing, Mount Ebal, the Mount of Curse. There's just a different debate. Does he refer to two mounds with those names that are in the you know, down in the Jordan Valley? Or is he actually referring to what are now Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim? So there's, there's some reason for the controversy. <clears throat> okay, moving way ahead. <clears throat> because of where Israel is, they have this whole long history. You know, there's uh, you end up with the powers of Egypt, the powers southwest of them, and you have the powers north and east of them constantly fighting and going back and forth. So Jerusalem and all of Israel, the whole Judea area, constantly is being ruled by different people. But then in the Maccabean Revolt, you actually have Jews controlling the land again. And so it's awesome. From a Jewish view, this is great. And part of this, so after the Maccabean Revolt, there was John, I guess it's perhaps Hyrcanus, but he was really known as John the Great High Priest. The Jews celebrate him as John the Great High Priest. And he ruled from 134 to 104, even though he was a high priest who ruled like a king. In fact, his son became the first king, the first Jewish king to rule in Judea. They referred him as the Hasmonean dynasty, which I won't get into. But So his son ends up an actual king. So you actually had a Jewish king ruling in Jerusalem. <clears throat> so he rules in 134 to 104. He's a great hero to the Jews. He's a great hero because he seized, demolished, and enslaved the city of Samaria. So the area of Samaria and Samaritans gets their name from the city of Samaria. Because when Omri was a king, when, when the kingdom was divided, down through the generations eventually of Omri, the king of Israel, and Omri set up the city of Samaria 
as the capital for the king, the kingdom in Israel at that time. So they, they not only did this, they siege and demolished Samaria, also a bunch of other towns. But they actually enslaved the Samaritan people. <clears throat> he destroys the temple at Mount Gerizim. So at around 500 BC, the Samaritans had built their own temple. There was a temple now, by this time, you have the temple that was built in Jerusalem, but they built their own temple at, in Gerizim, which greatly offended the Jews who don't think like the Samaritan Jews. So when he destroys the temple, it became a Jewish holiday. So just like the Orange Day Parade, they would have this holiday every year to celebrate how awesome when the great high priest got rid of that evil temple and subjugated all the Samaritans. Okay, this is recent history to them. Okay, my, when my sisters went to Ireland, they went to some villages where, you know, kind of where we think our family's from. And in the pubs, because the pubs are a great social place, they were celebrating. Um, Ireland was, is very pro-American because they see that America really bailed them out when the Brits were treating them badly. Um, and they would fight over who gets to claim them. No, no, you're from our village. No, no, you were, you were a Sullivan, you're from our village. And as they're talking to celebrate, say, yeah, but we don't talk about this certain family because their family took the soup. And that has to do with if you profess loyalty, you would get soup. And so those that would profess loyalty got the soup because they became loyalists to the Brits and the Protestants. And it's funny because one of them even said, it was hundred of years ago, but we hold it against them to this day. <laughs> Is that they still held a grudge. Well, this whole I thing with John Hyconus, the great high priest, the Jews held power until 63 AD, just 63 years before Christ is born. And so that subjugation is fresh in their mind culturally. And in fact, they subjugated the Samaritans while at the same time they were making allies with Gentile powers. So they were on one hand saying, well, we're Jews and you're not pure enough Jews so we can subjugate you. But at the same time, they're making allies with different Gentile powers that existed, including the Roman Empire. <clears throat> so up until 63 BC, they formally ruled Samaria. Even after that, they are culturally still celebrating things like the destruction of the temple. They are still celebrating their victory over them. And Samaria really has not, the Samaritans have not recovered from that devastation, even into the time of Jesus. Clear enough? Because I'm going to get the emotional context of this for Samaritans. All right, so this is now in John 4. I'm starting with verse 5. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So Jesus is alone there. First of all, it's weird just for a man to talk to a woman in both cultures. But she's a Samaritan woman. The Samaritan woman said to him, you were a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Because remember, Jesus is a Jew. You are the ones who have devastated us. Life is really rough on us. We're still recovering from devastation. How can you, a Jew who's done all this to us, ask me for a drink? 
So when it says Jews do not associate with Samaritans, that is a huge understatement. That, that's just not even touching the degree of hurt that's here. <clears throat> Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can I, you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Okay, again, the Samaritans identify with themselves as Jew. They are children of Jacob. They are children of Israel. It's also interesting how Jesus uses literal when it's figurative, even when people don't get it. And, and as much as we like to talk about Jesus, the great communicator, he does this all the time. I mean, all through John, when he's talking to the Pharisees, it's like, and the Pharisees were perplexed. I'm going, yeah, so what I would have been. He just, he doesn't make it easy on us. Okay, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Whatever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. This is profound, and it's definitely over her head. Okay? Because I want it clear, Jesus is talking over her head just like with everyone else. Jesus often speaks as things. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure you've experienced it too, where, God, I read this verse, or I, I got an impression for you, I'm excited about it. I know you're speaking to me. I have no clue what you really mean, but I'm sure glad you're talking. And I know it's going to take a long while for me to get what this is about. The one said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She's still thinking physically. He told her, go and call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right. When you say I have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you said is quite true. Sir, said the woman, I can see that you are a prophet. This is really powerful. I mean, it is, yes, Great word of knowledge, great. It's, it's just powerful, prophetic. Among the Jews in front of the Pharisees, did Jesus not do the prophetic? Did he not do amazing signs and wonders? And yet they didn't come to this conclusion, I can see you are a prophet. They refused to believe he was a prophet. I find this amazing because with all the hurt, with all the pain, Jesus is able to pierce through that and this woman is able to come to a conclusion that Jesus' own people aren't coming to. This, this is a powerful testimony of God's love penetrating her. <clears throat> Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Because what she's saying is, look, you're a prophet, so answer me this. Like, like this is the big difference between <clears throat> us. This is, this is supposedly what caused a lot of fights. So, great prophet, tell me what this is about. <clears throat> Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor Jerusalem. It's interesting because Jesus' answer is not A or B. Like, when? The whole fight is it's A or B. And Jesus is now doing something crazy. He's saying the answer is no. Your question is, is it A or B? And his answer is none of the above. <clears throat> The time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know for salvations from the Jews. Mm -hmm. That would be a hard statement for a Samaritan to swallow right now. Yeah. 
Yet a time is coming and is now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. So he's saying, it is not about where you are physically. Now this is jumping way ahead. This isn't revealed here and it wouldn't got there. We now know Jesus died on a cross so he could send us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in us. So he's speaking something way beyond what she can experience right now. The idea of worship is the very spirit of the living God lives in us and talks spirit to spirit. Our spirit engages his spirit. And that's where real worship happens. It's something within. Where, where you happen to live physically isn't the issue. <clears throat> but And truth is still truth, but I, don't want to, I want to emphasize something else. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus Claire declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. <clears throat> I find this interesting because there are very few places where Jesus is this direct in Scripture. Like even later on, when they're, they're about to crucify him, and they say, Jesus, tell us plainly, the Pharisees, give us a direct answer. And he just says, I've answered you and you aren't listening. He, he still doesn't just, he's just not direct. But with the Samaritan woman, he says, you're talking to him. I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised. Seems like a weird time for them to show up. Like that's a, that's a mic drop moment and all of a sudden these guys show up. <laughs> Jesus, just then his disciples returned were surprised to find him talking with the woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why you're talking to her? There's a number of times the disciples don't know what he's doing, but at least they're smart enough, like, let's not, let's not go there. <clears throat> then leaving her water jog, the woman went back to her town, said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the, the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. This is a woman. Um, a lot of commentators say the fact she had to go during the heat of day shows she was probably not only a woman, but an ostracized woman. That's why she had to go to the well alone. Mm -hmm. And yet her testimony is enough to where they will go check it out. And they will go see a Jew, even though they're Samaritans and have been oppressed by the Jews. <clears throat> Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. He said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then the disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? Again, natural reaction is we go natural. Not just the Samaritan, it's just the normal reaction. My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it is still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. That's an amazing statement because he's referring to the woman he just spoke to and to what's going to happen a few verses later. In the mind of the disciples right now, they are still not convinced Samaritans get to be saved. Okay, these are the same disciples that in another story, they were going through Samaria and the particular town they were near didn't, didn't receive Jesus. And they thought, I'm going to earn brownie points. Jesus is going to be impressed. Jesus, I, I've got something to impress Jesus. Jesus, I got this idea you're going to love. Let's call down fire and kill everyone and burn it to the ground. And they think that's a good thing. Let's burn these Samaritans to the ground. And Jesus has to say, you guys have no clue. 
Okay? The harvest is ripe. And the harvest is ripe with people that we may not think are ready for the gospel. The harvest is ripe with people that have such deep hurts and such deep problems, we would think that's a barrier to stop them. Because that's the point I'm getting across, which ah, I already blew it because I was going to ask you guys the question and I gave one of the answers, but that's right. But it hit me because I've, I've run into people and we see it in our culture, people with cultural hurts, people with family hurts, people with deep hurts. And when I read this, I see God penetrates family hurts. He penetrates spiritual hurts. <clears throat> Many of the, so I'm jumping a few verses. There's some important verses there, but that's not what I want to talk about right now. <clears throat> you know, it's all about reaping and sowing. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. See, this is amazing. Because again, this is, a, this is a town that has been reduced to rubble that has not recovered yet. Okay? Because it's only been like, I mean, it got reduced to rubble, and it was dominated, and the, the lordship over them just ended like 90 years earlier. They're still recovering from that. And yet, they're asking this Jewish prophet, stay with us. <clears throat> because of his words, many more became believers. They said to them, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. They're accepting a Jewish man as Savior of the world. They're believing in that. That is a powerful story of the love of God overcoming cultural hurts. <clears throat> okay, so this is, <clears throat> I already took one of them, but there's other ones. I just want us to stop and think. Think about the story. Think about the aspects of it. I mean, he's saying the fields are ripe. Jesus speaks obscure, and yet these people come to him. I mean, what, what are the takeaways from this story? It amazes me that he would stay there two days. That just, that blows my mind. That's good, yeah. He'd stay there two days, and it sounds like he wasn't planning it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's also hostile territory, you know. Yeah, formally. Yeah, and yeah, but even hostile. Like even his his disciples would not be thrilled about this. I'm I mean, sure. there were there were times the disciples were even like, "Let's go the long way. Let's cross the Jordan and go around." And they're walking. I'd rather I'd rather walk the long way than go near Samaritans. Mm -hmm. Anything else? She was like. That's powerful. And so, but so many believe after she she's the one that led them. Like they basically what did they say exactly that they they didn't just believe what she said. Now they know. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah, she was a woman evangelist. I mean, there there are certain denominations that can't even handle that alone, much less this is a Samaritan one. <laughs> 
<laughs> What's that? Yeah, a tainted woman. Now that is powerful. And it's powerful because she told them and got them, she got them interested in experiencing Jesus for themselves. And then they said, now we're not believing just because of what you said, we've seen him for myself. Because a lot of times we forget our stories don't have to be all that impressive. They just have to be enough to make people want to find out about Jesus. Anything else? The other thing is to remember every time you hear something like this, it's about differences in cultural race or something like that. And we are all the same. It doesn't matter if you're a Samaritan or a Greek or we're all children of God. We just can't see past our self-created barriers. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I think that's a huge point. Yeah, because I mean we have we have cultural barriers that our news talks about every day. And Jesus gets to a heart of something with it. I mean, I even find it interesting, Jesus did not get into the debate on whether it's Gerasism or Jerusalem. And then he talks heart to heart. You've had five husbands. I mean, that, that's the world of her she's been going through. So now he's talking personal. Like, he is touching her at heart level, not at head level. And I think that's powerful because the world tries to solve things at a financial, political, head, physical level. Jesus takes a different tact. I mean, the way I look at this is, how well do you think this woman felt seen when he told her his her history? Because in Jewish culture, they would not notice Samaritans. And reality is, Jewish culture, and back very, pretty much most of Rome, most of the empire of the world, a woman without wealth or prestige would be overlooked, not even seen. I mean, that's, even to engage with them would have been unlikely. I mean, you read in history books about women of power, but they're women of wealth and power. It, it wasn't the way life was for 99% of the women in the culture. And Jesus not only starts this conversation, he gets involved with her and really talks heart level. I think it's important what he didn't say too. Uh, he, uh, he talks with her about something that's culturally one of the most unacceptable things, which is like five men and things. And he doesn't say, now change the way you are and go and change the culture that you're in and you know you're smart and change that. And then come to me. <clears throat> and then come to me. He doesn't go after that. I think a lot of times we go after, or the church as a whole, this one huge homogenous entity, um, won't even allow people into a building, um, regardless of what the words are said. And Jesus didn't even address that. He, he spoke out something that is wildly unacceptable in that culture, but not in a derogatory manner. He did not condemn her for it. Yeah. He just brought it up as evidence and then said, now go, get people to come. Yeah, yeah, it's good. He, he wasn't calling out her sin to shame her. No, he's the one. He was just letting her know, I really know you. I really know you. Yeah. Um, I think that is huge. I mean, that was the whole thing that, you know, we know in missions historically. Um, you know, when the European missions went to China, they tried to make the Chinese Dutch or English. They tried to make the Chinese European, and they wondered why it never worked. 
until until Hudson Taylor showed up, and he's the one that you know he grew a ponytail, learned Chinese, and dressed like the Chinese, and he got kicked out of his mission society because he was quote compromising when he was saying no, I want to bring Jesus to their culture. My goal isn't to change their culture to be like us. I want them to understand Jesus in their culture. And there, yeah, and that was a what we see all through the epistles, the whole constant thing. The Gentiles have to become Jews to get saved. And instead it was like, no, we're bringing Jesus to the Gentiles. And I like what you say. Like, he did not give them a long speech, say, so now you all accept me as Messiah. Let's all go to Jerusalem and worship now. It's like, no, he didn't even touch that. Anything else? Yeah. I'm just amazed at God's ability to just hit each one of us in a personal level. You know, and then from that personal level, you know, we can touch other lives just as she did. You know, but I think that, that even in a cultural uh, situation, he still goes after one heart at a time. That's beautiful. Yeah, it's hard because, uh, you know, like, uh, some of you know I go to different countries, specifically one. And because of its high population, because of where it is culturally, um, there's some beauty the way they value a community, but at the same time, they don't value individuals in some ways. It's like, um, like because uh, I, I noticed this from one of the local families that I've spent a lot of time with said, yeah, there were two deaths due to a train accident. And he said, they said, what's sad is, not my, it's like, the issue was get the bodies out of the way and keep the trains going. And they said, like, it's not even news. It's like the death of an individual doesn't even impact people. And it just grieves them because it's like life seemed too cheap. Yeah. I also take encouragement from this, and I'll close with this one. Because <clears throat> sometimes we see hurts and we see all the division, all the things going on, and it can get discouraging. It's like we can't get people to listen to each other. People argue and they shout and no one's listening to each other. People like, and even in my own family, it's like, you don't even seem interested in hearing the other side. And it's like, well, I already know what they think. I know, but it helps them the way, I mean, it, it sounds weird, but the old book years ago about influencing people. Um, I read a summary, but I haven't read the book. But it basically got down to, if you want to influence people, be a listener. Because until people feel heard and connected with, they, they don't want any influence from you. Is like hearing people out and valuing it. And I felt overwhelmed. And reading this and reminding, just being reminded of this story just tells me there's hope. I mean, there's a lot, quite a number of them become believers in two days, <clears throat> in spite of all the cultural stuff that would tell us they're unreachable. They were reachable. And I just, it just encourages me, just as we're involved with people. As we listen to how the Holy Spirit, as we listen to the Holy Spirit invite us to participate with what he's doing, it should free us from the idea of ever thinking there's anybody that could not be impacted right now. You know, they, they couldn't have their heart touched right now. Mm -hmm. There's nobody outside the reach. doesn't matter how many family hurts, how many culture hurts, there's all this noise and stuff. But I believe the Spirit can lead us to see that, that the white with harvest is anyone, whether or not we normally would think they're ready or not. God can give us words of connection. Because what I see there is Jesus had divine given words of connection. Mm 
And I think it's really important, like Jerry said, he wasn't given that word to judge her. He was giving that word to connect with her. Thank you for joining us today at Coastline Church. To find out more information, please visit coastlinefoursquare.com.